Welcome to Podcast One. We hope you'll support our sponsors who bring you these podcasts absolutely free and with limited interruptions. And of course, we appreciate you listening to this show, which will get started in just a second. The following program is a Forbes and Podcast One production. Hi, I'm Denise Ristari, and this is Mentoring Moments, a podcast where smart, witty, and bold women are sharing their triumphs and their skids. We aren't just talking, we're taking action, and we're inviting you to join us every Wednesday in my New York City apartment, where we are proudly sponsored by the business platinum card from American Express. And at the table, I'm so excited, is Sherry Paul. I'm excited for many reasons, and we'll get into those. But one is the person who introduced us, many of you have met on the show, is Libby Moore. And so it's like one of those great stories of the connect the dots of people who we have the same, the moral compasses are in alignment, the integrity, and it's just a wonderful connection. So thank you. Thank you for being here, Sherry. I love being here. Thank you. I'm so excited. So Sherry is a private wealth advisor and senior portfolio manager at UBS Wealth Management. She's number 100 on the 2017 Forbes Top 200 Women Wealth Advisors in America, which is a big, big deal. I mean, there are thousands of people you're competing with. And Forbes uses, this is not like some friend of a friend. There's algorithms and this is a qualitative, a quantitative process they go to to select it is. the top women. Yeah, and they actually conduct interviews too, which I which I appreciate about their particular approach. So, so I was really proud to make the list. Thank and you. It's a great honor. Sherry leads one of a few all-female teams in the financial services industry, mm-hmm. which is also huge. And then it gets better. The team has a philanthropic focus on financial literacy education for women and girls, which is near and dear to my heart. And, you know, if we're not educated we just get stuck and yeah, we have to, especially on financial literacy on all things, it's, we're able to move our lives forward mm-hmm. when we know what we're doing, mm-hmm. when we're educated. So that's really near and dear to me. And in her job, when I was like, what does, what does a wealth manager do kind of, you know, what do you do? I like when you said this, that mm-hmm. you help people in moments of change. Mm-hmm. Like when we hit those bumps in the road, the good bumps and the bad bumps, mm-hmm. you help us navigate through them. Yes. And I, I love that because I think a lot of times we think that a wealth manager mm-hmm. is somebody who is just putting our money places right. and it's not an intimate relationship. That's right. Actually, we talk a lot about it. We characterize it when life interrupts in moments of change that either are unexpected, some of them planned, good and bad. And in reality, you know, and and actually my team, we were just talking about this, that really we view ourselves as being in the humanities business and not necessarily the investment business where investments and money sit inside the lives of people, um, unfolding in complex and unexpected ways. And and really the math of the markets are something that you can actually, you know, build probabilities and math around. Um, but the human, you know, the human journey is something that unfolds. It's different for everyone. And it's, it's the thing that we all love, um, about what we do. And, um, and actually, you know, makes me feel, uh, you know, I often joke that, I mean, I'm a, I'm a private wealth advisor, but in many ways it's sort of accidental for me that I'm actually in, um, what everyone refers to as the financial services industry. So we're sort of reinventing that from the inside out that we're really in the humanities business and, and helping people step into moments that matter and take care of people that they love and protect themselves in ways that they might be fearful of and, and continue in the journey and hopefully find a purpose for themselves that, you know, that in the end their money can serve. And so it's been a learning process in so many ways in the 20 years that I've been doing this. Um, it was a huge departure from what I was doing before when I worked in nonprofit, which you and I have talked right. about. Which we're going to get into. We are going to get sure into, we're going to get into yeah, that. So thank you, though, for highlighting all of that. It means a lot. But, but I think, you know, at the heart of what you were just saying is that you are an activist for the human spirit. Yes. And how you got here is a windy road, which I definitely <laughs> want to get into because yes, you know is. you didn't go to college thinking I'm going to be Mm-mm. doing this. I'm going to be in the financial industry. No, I did not. Which is a, which are the stories I love to share because yeah. I'm all about telling women of all ages, mm-hmm. young and older, doesn't matter what our ages are. Just take the path that you want to take. Right. And no matter what you are doing, and we're going to get into all of that. Yeah. So I'm going to kick it off with my mentoring moment. Oh, great. When I was younger, like a teenager, my brother was in at Yale and mm-hmm. I was at, like a junior in high school. He's four, four and a half years older than I am. Okay. And 
I was always sewing and creating things with my hands. I'm just this, I really am this creative human mm-hmm. being that I just love making things. So he's coming home. Home is this tiny little town outside of Pittsburgh. So he's coming home from Yale for the weekend. Let me just preface. My brother was the first person to ever go to an Ivy League school wow. from where I grew up. So this is a big deal. That's a big that, deal. You know, he's at Yale and he's coming home. And I'm like, okay, when he gets here, I need his help <laughs> because... I need to go to New York because I just made some great scarves <laughs> and New York needs to Needs see. those scarves. They need them. They, they need, need to them. be wrapped in my scarves. Yes. And so my brother gets home and I'm I like, I have $25, right? <laughs> and so I'm like, okay, I have $25. Now we're outside of Pittsburgh. So this is a, a little commute. It's I like a good, right? Yes. <laughs> Even if I had a car, it's a good eight hour, nine hour drive to get to New York. And I didn't have a car. Yeah. So I'm not sure how I'm going to get there. <laughs> But I have $25 and he has no money either, right? Because he's at Yale and we right. come from this small little town. So it's not like, you know, unless he was dealing drugs and didn't tell any of us, I'm not <laughs> sure where his money was coming from. But that didn't dawn on me, right? He was my older brother. So he comes home and I'm like, I'm going to New York. I need $25 more because I think 50 is going to make it for me. Yeah. To which he says, I think we need to rethink this just a little, right? Which is why he went to Yale. Right, he's putting that Ivy League education <laughs> right, right. to good, good use, use against your, your entrepreneurial that, right. spirit, right? Giving me that. It's going to guardrail your right, entrepreneurial right. Giving it. me that sound advice. But I was thinking, <laughs> when is the last time I dreamt that way? Mm. At being an entrepreneur, being wow. all those years at USA Today, I had dreams, right? Mm-hmm. Where I, I dream we're going to be the number one newspaper. That yeah. was a dream. But in all seriousness, mm. that, that, that dream where you say, the world needs me. I didn't yes. think how wow. many other people were making scarves. Mm-hmm. I didn't think, hmm. are they more talented than me? Right. I really was like, the world needs to see what I'm making. Wow. And that really made me say, as I said, hmm. think, when is the last time I've thought that way? Yeah. And I can't remember. I mean, I think that may have been hmm. the last time I really thought mm-hmm. the world needs to hmm. see what I'm doing. That hmm. doesn't mean that I don't value what I do or I don't think that the world needs to hear what I'm doing. That's mm-hmm. a, but with that energy hmm. and that intention, mm-hmm. I don't think it's been there since then. Hmm. So that's my goal right now is hmm. to... I'm getting very vulnerable here. Resurface that, Denise. That, that Denise, it's like the world needs to be wrapped in my scars. Yes. Well, figuratively and maybe even literally. Right. Um, You know what's interesting about that is I wonder... And this is just a question. I, you need a I, scarf? I, I do. You know, I need, I, I need your scarf. Um, but I just wonder if part of that is that as we sort of like real, we self-actualize into the dream that we thought it, we had for ourselves, if our language for measuring success as to whether or not we achieve that dream starts to actually inhibit our ability to actually continue to dream bigger. I think it does. Meaning, you know, like how we measure the achievement of it. So in the scarf case, would it have been like, wow, I hit a finance, I hit a number, I sold enough scarves or I, I was placed it in the boutique and now it's done, which is really what something that you and I've talked about, which is how do you elevate beyond the dream into the ultimate purpose or intention behind what you're trying to do, which in the case of the scarf is just how powerful it is to have the energy as a woman to say, I'm going to do something new and different and actually embark on it. Because the obstacles along the way or the people who tell you that you can't do it ultimately end up being the powerful life narrative. And if we can kind of endure that, right, because, you know, opening a new door isn't isn't easy. And you're always going to have people around you. I have a saying, you know, you're always going to have people around you who who in your path can't necessarily see how big your life is going to be for you. And you have to sidestep them. And you have to then fall into the arms of the people who can. Oh, yeah. And yes, how yes, yes. we actually learn to, you know, curate that along the way, I think is really the, the, the key to, you know, what could be the key to reimagining once again, like the, the limitless possibility of things. Do you know what I mean? Yes, like we kind of sure. get these scar, these battle wounds of people who tell us we can't do things. Or we think they're smarter than, so let me tell right. you what happened in my dream. Yeah. Tell me. So, so I wanted to be a designer, a fashion mm. designer mm-hmm. and girls didn't really go to college where I was growing up. Girls stayed home, took care of the family. The guys went to college. So the guidance counselors weren't really like gun ho about go to, you know, go to college, Mm -hmm. go to college, go to college. Hmm. So anyway, my guidance counselor said to me, Hmm. you know, you can't draw, which I can't draw. Mm -hmm. I'm going to rephrase that. I 
don't think I, I mean, I, I've never really tried, but right. th- I wasn't great at, at drawing. You can, Maybe you I can could visualize, be. but not manifest in writing. Right. But I could drape. Okay. Now what's funny <laughs> is years later, I met Donna Karen. Who, wow couldn't drape, but, but she, she could, could draw. draw, but she had a different set of people wow. around her mm-hmm. rooting her on and right. saying, go for it. So I had a guidance counselor who was like, and then in those days, Bill Blass was the big designer. Mm-hmm. Ralph Lauren yeah. was, and she was like, and you can't compete with Bill Blass or Ralph Lauren. Right. We didn't have the internet then. So I couldn't go look up to Donna Karen, know how to, did she know how to drape or whatever, mm-hmm. but they didn't see the, what I did do well, mm-hmm. which was drape. Mm-hmm. And I could make these fabulous outfits and mm-hmm. I made bridesmaids dresses oh, wow. for my friends. And, and I could do all these things. All she saw was you can't draw. Mm. Nobody even looked at it and said, well, maybe mm-hmm. you don't draw because we don't have the right teachers. Right. Or maybe you haven't taken enough drawing classes. It mm-hmm. was, you can't draw, so therefore so you therefore can't you be. So therefore you can't be. Wow. Wow. Another moment where I feel like you're my sister right. another mother. <laughs> because? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, uh, you know, I had I had a similar experience when I went from nonprofit into to finance, which we can talk about um, in a minute. But like that sensation of of the person not being able to kind of envision who you are and therefore you're not relevant. And how do we kind of, you know, move, move, step aside, move beyond in a a way that we can really, um, see ourselves more clearly, not through the eyes of other people. We can recognize the importance of, of a collaborative moment where people who really care about you can offer you insight Mm -hmm. and mentoring. Um, but getting attuned to, um, what seemed like more, experienced or evolved or, you know, credible voices who, for whatever reason, believe that that entitles them to now start to set our personal narrative is really, I think for me, the thing that I've really had to focus on is not allowing that to happen because when you're, when you represent so many firsts in your family, like you have, um, there's always going to, and it's a non-traditional path that isn't necessarily sanctioned, whether it's academically or institutionally, um, or in this case, in, from a gender standpoint, right? Girls just didn't do that where you came from. Um, how do you surmount that, right? And stay in the dream and and know that, wow, once you maybe, you know, did in some way, that doesn't mean it's over in terms of, you know, making sure that you're training your heart and your mind to continue in that openness. Does that make sense? Yes, that makes perfect sense. I mean, that's sense. amazing. That makes so, yes, does it make sense to me? It makes perfect sense to me. And I want to talk more about this because mm-hmm. I do want to give our listeners mm-hmm. tips because I think a lot of times we talk about what is happening, but then we leave people without the things like, what yeah. what would we have done differently? What would we have done differently? Right. And I want to get into that. Mm-hmm. But first I want to do your mentoring moment mm-hmm. because I want to make sure we do that. And okay. then we'll circle back and give the tips to our listeners. So okay. your mentoring moment. Okay. My mentoring moment. So my mentoring moment feels a lot like uh, yours in a way that is, you know, one of sort of a non-traditional path. So when I came to New York, I literally, um, came to New York via backpacking through Asia after waiting tables in San Francisco, after graduating as a philosophy major, um, during the 19, in 1991. So when I got out of college as a philosophy major and my, my pseudo minor was Japanese, everyone at the time was like, you're never going to get a job. You're never going to be able to take care of yourself. And I just always felt like, learning how to be a good human was going to carry me through. I don't know why that was. I think innately, you know, in terms of, um, people that loved and cared about me, my family is very entrepreneurial. I was the first one to go to four-year college in both sides of my family. Um, so that was a moment. So, um, after waiting tables, traveling through Asia, I land in New York. I start working in nonprofit because I feel like it's very important to make a contribution in the community that you're living in. And, um, at that point in my life, I really didn't understand uh, and know a lot about money and how it worked and how to save it. I just knew like I needed to do enough to pay my rent. I needed to do enough to cover my bills. And then I needed to live in a neighborhood where I could actually afford you know, to eat. So invariably in New York, that ended up being in the East Village, um, which back in, in the day was, you know, a very inexpensive place to live. And, um, you know, it meant at the time living, you know, on, uh, you know, Thursday night were furniture nights when people would have to put the furniture out on the street and we'd all go out and like steal the furniture off the curb and spray paint milk cartons into you know, milk crates into bed frames and I mean, bookcases and all sorts of stuff. So as I kind of embarked on my, my nonprofit work, I was really at that time 
and the AIDS epidemic was really gripping the country. And that was really where I chose to, to spend my volunteer time. So I started working, um, raising money for AIDS organizations and other nonprofits, uh, learning how to do development events. And I uh, eventually graduated to working on political campaigns because I realized that actually, you know, one of the greatest ways to make change is to change legislation and to change legislation. You have to change, you know, who's voting legislation. And in order to do that, you've got to fund campaigns. And I sort of learned about this whole ecosystem, both through philanthropy and through, um, pol- you know, politics here in New York, how actual change gets manifested. And so um, as I went up that ladder of understanding how, you know, how important the role of money was, like you can't run a campaign without a money and you can't run great programs um, out of a nonprofit if you don't have major donors. So I uh, started spending more time with, with major donors and learning about all the different ways that people had sort of like made the money that they were now contributing. And I thought, wow, I got to learn about this thing called money. And so I uh, made a decision but I was going to go into what my nonprofit friends called, you know, the belly, the beast or the dark side as they called it. And I started researching, um, financial, you know, careers. And I chose, I went into private client, which is really working with individuals and families because I thought, wow, you know, what I could bring to the table in that was a genuine interest and care in the outcome that people were trying to achieve in their life, which is exactly what I was doing with political and nonprofit work. And I thought if I could sell that in a job interview, that the rest of it, I could learn like the math of the market, the way I kind of justified this in my head was that the market's about math. So that's one plus one equals two, you know, it's a finite toolkit. I just had to like learn that. But the, but the humanities part of it was something that I really felt like, I'm going to really go with my strength and what I've committed my life to and see if I can do it a little bit differently. So my mentoring moment came when I actually started door knocking on these financial firms that just looked at me like I had a th- like I had three heads, you know. You, so have no, you have no education. I have no financial. No yeah, I rolled in with $800 in a backpack. From more Japan. than 25 Yeah, more than 25 And so I, um, you know, to make a long story short, I, I grabbed a phone book. I had a friend that worked at one of the firm that ultimately hired me. And this is back in the day before the internet. This is key. So the big fat, you know, yellow five inch thing called a phone book. They used to land it on your front door in New York. And, um, and so I went through the phone book. I found out where all of the branch offices were for this firm that I wanted to work for. And I went and hand delivered my, went to a typewriting service cause I didn't have a computer and a printer at home and had them type up my resume and these applications that my friend had sent me. And I basically just started landing them all over the city. And what I learned was that the firm, each of these branch offices were controlled by one person and they sort of had their own little business, but they treat up to the global. This is a big notable firm. And so I got three callbacks, okay, on my answering machine at home because there were no cell phones. Two of them were from uh, branch managers that wanted to interview me. One of them was from the HR department. And the message from the HR department said, We've gotten nine of your applications have come back to us from all over the place. And um, please stop sending these around. You need to come through us. And if anyone else has called, you need to cancel those interviews, right? So if there's one thing I've learned is you just, you really, it's important not to let other people necessarily, they can influence your destiny. We can't dictate it, right? So I thought, God, I have nothing to lose which I think is a great way to feel in life. You know, literally like I always thought, you know what? Something just told me, keep those other appointments. And I did. So I started a dual path of interview and, uh, started interviewing with the, with this HR woman, um, and started interviewing with ultimately, um, this other branch manager who, by the way, the, the, the interview process at that time in the industry was one of berating just to see if you would come back. Like I learned that the, really they rejected you. Part of their hiring process was to reject you six times just to see if you would keep coming back which is really interesting if you're, you know, and I think it's as a side note, one of the, one of the reasons that, that women are not in this, you know, it's really like a brutal. And I thought, well, I don't have anything to lose. And I wasn't taking it personally. So I had this dual path. Well, when I went to the HR, I went through the process with the HR and for whatever reason, she just just was not having me, you know, I was too happy. I was too bubbly. I was like, I worked a nonprofit. Like she's looking at me, like, who do you think you are in some ways to even think that you can apply for this job? And what I learned from her in hindsight, looking back from that was 
her attitude towards me had nothing to do with me. It really had to do with where she was sitting in her own view of herself and not able to sort of visualize why I thought I could do that, particularly where I came from, like a no-name school in California, kind of a hippie college, you know, um, a, a resume that was completely... Philosophy in Japanese. Yeah, philosophy Japanese. I worked for civil rights organizations. I worked for both Republican and de- Democratic campaigns based on issues. I wasn't like, you know, part of any one particular political party. I just worked on the advocacy of issues. So long story short, I'm battling my way through this job interview at this branch office. I'm battling my way through the HR and I finally get a job offer from the branch office. And, you know, on the sixth time I showed up unannounced several times and I thought, (laughs) what do I have to lose? You know, and I'd sit and wait in the lobby and did did they see you? They did. Yeah. And I had, look, I had to do it differently. Like I didn't have an MBA from Harvard. I didn't study finance. Um, I had to do it differently. And the way that I was going to do it was just to be more persistent, professionally persistent, which is what I call it, but I wanted to be present. And, um, it, and so, uh, and I think my activist background working on political campaigns helped me in that moment because I was like, I'm on a campaign to get this job. Right. And you, and you, and you also were able to say, what do I have to lose? What do I have to lose? Right. Yeah. What do I have to lose? Um, I have everything to gain in the experience of trying, you know, at that point it was like, I'm just going to see if I can do this. You know, it was like almost like being an imposter, um, where I felt like, okay, I'm going to try this on for size. It was like a costume in a way, if I could do this, that was the the way I had for whatever my self-preservation, I had to approach it from that way. Maybe to, you know, protect myself from the, the fear of the failure of it. But it was a private journey, uh, not one that was going to put me in a moment of public humiliation. As you get more notable in your career, those are really the risks now that people think about. And it's all in our head, you know. Nobody cares. As B. Arthur, who's been on the show, says she's a licensed therapist and she's like, Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. You realize that life's a whole lot better. You do. And so um, to make what I said was going to be a short story a little longer. I'm battling my way through. I get the job offer from the branch manager. Remember, this is before the internet. I come home, I open my mailbox, and I have a rejection letter from the HR person. (laughs) Okay? A rejection letter from the HR person that that was really like, you know, we're sorry to tell you, but you're just not qualified. In fact, we think you're underqualified and that it wouldn't even be worth your time. I mean, it was a really like direct, like stab at the heart kind of like letter. And... I literally, I, I, I looked at the letter and I threw it in the garbage and I showed up for work on Monday at that branch office. And again, no computers. So I just thought, I'm going to show up. What's go- What's the worst thing that's going to happen? You can act like you didn't get the mail. I didn't get the mail. And so I started working. Three months later, I run into her in the hallway. <laughs> okay. And she looks at me and goes, what are you doing here? And I said, oh, I was hired by, you know, such and such person. She looks me in the eye and she says, oh, he likes to hire girls like you. And I thought, wow, wow. I thought to myself, I I didn't even know what to do in that moment. And as I look back on it, like what a moment of pain, you know, for someone to say something like that to you. But it really knocked my socks off a little bit. And I thought, wow, well, maybe I do have something going on. I was a little skinnier then. Maybe I should take it as a compliment, <laughs> you know? Um, and then I, all I could muster up was like, well, I guess that's good luck for me, you know? And I thought, okay, that's when I thought, you know what? I'm going to do this all on my own. Um, because in finance, sometimes the managers will give you accounts and things. And I marched into my manager's office and I said, I never want to get an account. I never want to be introduced to a client through anyone at this firm. I'm going to do this on my own. And, uh, he was like, okay, fast forward 18 months later. And by the way, my, this part of my mentoring moment is that sometimes people are meant to just help you battle your own internal demons about your worst nightmare around failure. I felt like she was like my unconscious voice telling me like, you know, sort of personified to put right in front of me to help me verbalize it and get it out. Cause you know, I've, you know, the insecurities, do I belong here? Am I meant to be here? Did I get hired for some other reason than am I an imposter? Am I an imposter? Yeah. The imposter. Exactly. And I look back on that moment and go, wow, what a gift. What, what a gift like that, that person got put in front of me to, to give me that chance to fight it. Right. 18 months later, I'm at the top of the training program just through preparedness and good luck colliding, you know, cause I mean, I didn't have any money and I, I knew people who had money, but I was helping them with their intention 
And so I never even like went back to the people in politics in my nonprofit world and said, oh, by the way, you know, this is what I'm doing. In fact, I, I still haven't done that because I felt like that just wasn't, that wasn't the relationship. So fast forward 18 months, I'm like, you know, the top of our training program and the, the regional person comes and asks me, he's like, look, we're doing like a, you know, they called it a cattle call. We put an ad in the New York Times when we're having 300 people come to the auditorium and we want you to be the keynote speaker to talk about how you, how you got an early start and how you're successful in building your client base. This is what he says to me. And I was like, wow, like nobody had ever asked me to speak in public, let alone I didn't want to let him down. And I, you know, really thought about what I was going to say and I prepared and and I show up at this cattle call and there are like 300 people in line and I'm trying to like make my way, you know, towards the front because it's going to get started in 10 minutes. And guess who's hosting? The woman. Event? The HR lady. I'm good at this. The woman. You are good. She's hosting the event. Okay. Right. And as I'm making my way through the crowd, she yells over the top of the heads of everybody and says, when you fail out of the training program, you're not allowed to come and apply for the job twice. She yells this over the heads of me and I'm tall, right? You know, I'm tall. So I can see her. She can see me yells. You're not allowed to apply twice. If you failed. So those programs had a very high failure rate, like one in five people make it in these, these programs back in the late nineties. So I shimmied up to the front and I thought it, that was my moment of like, wow, that was like an, a, the public humiliation. I thought, well, so I shimmied up to the front. I said, actually, I'm the keynote speaker. Where would you like me? And what time would you like for me to start? And she went, oh, and that was it. So my mentoring moment, I really want to thank her. And she taught me two things. One, I'm not an imposter. And I really felt that way when I first started that I'm like a really, I'm a person who wants to do good for the world and for people. And I found a setting that, that I think I can do that in that's at the center of change, which we'll talk more about why financial literacy for girls, which I think is powerful. She also taught me the difference between empathy and compassion. And this is something that I really, you know, meditate on quite a lot where empathy at least my understanding of empathy is that empathy is when you, when you see someone in a moment of suffering or like laying under a rock and you go, Oh, okay, I get it. That must hurt. But compassion is having the willingness to actually crawl under the, the rock and understand the pain of it and then try and move it right movement for change. And so I thought to myself in that moment, I'm going to be a different kind of influencer in the space. And I want to, help other people who may feel like an imposter step into moments and spaces that they may not think that they belong in, but they have an instinct that that's their next step. And then to empower that moment to be as transformative as it's meant to be with a real levity around, you know, we can't all take it too seriously because then we end up being part of the problem, right? When you start thinking that you're better than that, you've climbed the ladder, so to speak, like that analogy of the ladder where, you know, the view never changes if you're the second person climbing the ladder. Right. Exactly. No, it doesn't. No. So, so how you actually, you know, whereas if you're, you know, helping people up your face to face, your hand to hand. So she taught me that. And, um, um, that was a huge mentoring moment for me that, that is bookended with a second iteration of that. Cause I have felt that too, where I'm like, okay, well, what happened to that dreamer? Like nothing to lose everything to gain. Why not the creative scarf making, right. you know, for me, that's where I, so let's talk it. about Does that. that. Makes sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. And I think it's a great mentoring moment because it yeah. has, I, you know, I think it's great because our mentoring oh. moments aren't always just one little thing, that, no. right? They're so intertwined yes. and there, you, your story has the woman who is either unhappy with herself, unhappy with life, unhappy with whatever, I don't know, but yeah. who is, is not part of our sisterhood right. in helping other women. Number one. Mm-hmm. And I think we're confronted with these yes. women and men every single day mm-hmm. of our lives. And they show up in so many, so different, many different ways. ways. Yeah. And then our own insecurities mm-hmm. or and the things that get in our way. So we have people telling us what we can't do. Yes. And then we've got those voices that mm-hmm. are in our heads and over our shoulders yeah. saying, mm, you really can't do this. You're really good. And you know, if you look at like with the scarf, 
they were they were right. I mean, if you said to me, can you draw? I would have had to say no. no. From that experience I had to that mm-hmm. point, drawing right. was not my strong suit. Mm-hmm. But I didn't have to draw and maybe I could have. Before we keep going with Sherry, let me tell you about the business platinum card from American Express. As an entrepreneur, the card I carry is the business platinum card from American Express. That's because business can be done from anywhere, in the palm of your hand and at the source. However you move your business forward with business platinum, it's not about where you are. It's about where you want to take your business next. And nothing helps you like the resources and know-how of the business platinum card. Backed by the service and security of American Express. Hey, have you heard? Podcast One has a whole bunch of awesome new shows filled with big names that are waiting for you on our brand new amazing app. This one's a game changer. There's Norman Lear talking to Amy Poehler, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, and Charles Barkley. Geffen Playhouse Unscripted with Brian Cranston, Josh Gad, and soon Neil Patrick Harris. Nice. OC Real Housewife, Heather Dubrow's World, Lady Gang's Three Mimosa Podcast with Leah Michelle, Nelly Furtado, L. King, and more. Plus every episode of The Adam Carolla Show, Dan Patrick, and Rich Eisen. And if you like what happens in the ring, we've got Steve Austin, Chris Jericho, Chael Sonnen, and a whole bunch more. So download our one-of-a-kind new app and see for yourself. Go to the App Store, Google Play, or download it now at podcastone.com. You're listening to Mentoring Moments with Denise Rastari. So let's talk about how you're a young woman and you're confronted with the obstacles. Mm-hmm. How, what are some things that you can just keep in, the, in your head of, in addition to our stories, because I think that's the value of our story. So when people are in those situations, yes. they can say, I remember this story, you know, Sherry Paul was in this, Denise was in this, yeah. and they got out of it. But looking at those like really, those mm-hmm. grounded moments, I think it's easy to say, don't let other people influence you, but that's hard. That's yes. really hard. Well, I think what ends up happening is that we kind of feel like we have to over-perfect whatever we're presenting or the job that we're doing before we have credibility to talk about what we're talking about. So if there's one piece of advice I would give is that you want to be prepared. No need to be perfect, particularly as you're building a career or building like you're in a new work environment. You know, what I what I have found is that particularly when you're dealing like in investments where there's math involved, that there's a right and a wrong way of doing things supposedly. And when that narrative comes out, it's a way of alienating people from their own ability to, to either participate or excel. So my advice, particularly young people, agnostic of gender is that in the workplace, when you start to actually focus on raising your hand to stand out, other people, whatever their agenda is, people will kind of like come at you in whatever they perceive your weaknesses about yourself. Does that make sense? Yes. So, so whether for women, it might be their gender, right? If you were, you know, short and overweight, it might be, you know, you're like the fat guy in the office, like whatever it is that people, you know, in a competitive environment, like, you know, in the, in the arena that I, that I was, that I'm in and was in, but I, you know, are building my own arena, you know, based on humanities, that that spirit of competition in the workplace brings out people who are either going to help and support and elevate you they're neutral to your outcome or they're destructive to your outcome. And they unconsciously may not even be aware that that's what they're doing. So number one, don't take it personally. My sister told me this actually, don't take it personally. You know, it was one of the best pieces of advice I've ever had. Don't take it personally. Um, because when we over-personalize things, then we put ourselves at the center of whatever that situation is for sure. And in a way that's a form of egoism. You know, where you're like, oh, it's all about me when really it's, it has nothing to do with me. So, so if someone's behaving towards you, I mean, practically in a way that doesn't make sense to you, just, you need to step aside from it, not even like debate or engage it, but move on in what your own plan is. Right. Um, and I think you need to have, you had enough of an emotional bank account yeah. to be able to say, I'm going to keep going back, yes. you know, and even though this woman told me not mm-hmm. to go and apply, I'm still going I'm to it. do it. Yes. And I think that is really key is that key. you have to have that emotional bank mm-hmm. account to say, yeah. what's the worst that's going to happen? I'm going to upset right. this woman. Oh, well, she may never hire me. Oh, well, she's probably not going to hire me anyway. Right. But I think we, especially when we're younger, mm-hmm. but not always, I mean, it happens mm-hmm. at all ages, right? We want to please everyone. So yeah. it's like, I mean, I could picture myself saying this a couple of years ago, even being able to, Mm -hmm. I I probably would have said, oh, she's the head of, therefore, right. Therefore, right. She knows what she's talking about. Right. And she's told me not to do this. Right. And so I don't want to offend her. So I'm not going to do that Mm -hmm. because I may need her someday. But the reality of it is you've got to look at the person Mm -hmm. and say, she's never going 
to be a fan of mine, no matter what, no matter for whatever. What. And it's and not me, okay. and that's where it's not person. It's not yeah. me. It's who she is. Right. So whatever she's carrying, mm-hmm. and I think that's a real key that we've got. Mm-hmm. And that emotional bank account then yeah. comes from either people we work with, people, our friends, our family, wherever we get that from, mm-hmm. from doing nonprofit work, from volunteering, and building up that emotional bank account mm-hmm. in those areas of our lives. Well, I love that phrase, emotional bank account. I think that we we have to take responsibility for how we foundationally think introspectively about who we are, why we're here, how we can help, and what the ultimate outcomes that we want to be. And I think that that it's difficult when you're like, you know, $800 in a bank account, like how I started in the industry, that you are faced with decisions in your workplace or when you're trying to, you know, if you have to take a job or should you take a job that you don't like, there's always a moment to build the qualitative self. You know, I read a great book and there's, there's a phrase in this book that I read called success beyond success. And what he talks about in this book is that if we act with essential integrity, that every moment is a chance for us to express our higher self and, and mature and learn about who we are as people. And those lessons are lessons that we can carry with us. And if we're attempting to do that, we might fail in an activity. We might get fired from a job. I mean, I've been fired from a few jobs. Um, you might get fired from a job. You might not get the pay raise. You might not get the tangible external validation that you're moving forward in life. But in order to move beyond those moments that you know are external, that really cultivating, like yeah, that emotional bank. And I think that. It's interesting to me that now that now we're sort of coming full circle in the world where he, like humanities and philosophy and studying psychology and like, you know, the guy from Shark Tank even came out and said, hey, it's not about don't forget your engineering degree because the robos are coming and the algorithmic, you know, uh, technologies are taking over, quote, engineering jobs. And we used to really value those. But now the ability to manage and run teams in, in composition with technology and having a higher sense of self, it's ironic to me that those are going to be the skill sets. Right that bring forward. So the emotional bank, I love that. In fact, the emotional bank will, you can always figure out some way to make the money. Right. And it goes back to the beginning. Mm-hmm. Don't pay attention I to people that. who tell you what you can't what do. What you can't do. I think if that's one takeaway from this, up to this point yes, of the conversation, yes. don't you know, do what you believe what you, you can believe. do and yeah. don't listen to them because they don't know. Yeah. And once you do that, you're mm-hmm. giving your power to, to someone them, else. And that is well, never a good and I'll idea. I'll tell you, I think it's important to you to develop what I call pivot phrases that are very polite. We can say, you know what? I really appreciate you sharing your opinion. I respectfully, you know, disagree. Um, but thank you for your willingness to be honest with me. And then you just move on and you keep moving right. on. You need to move on. Right. You I need mean, to move on. You just keep the moving. Me- that's the yeah. message. You need to move on. You need on. to move on and, um, and never get, yeah, you need to move on. So speaking of moving so, on, anyway. let's do the opposite of moving on. Let's talk about what we're done with. Oh my gosh. Okay. So I'm done with that. Yeah. So I'll kick off. I'm, Please do. Okay. So okay. I'm done with, and you're you've done, heard a part of this done story, with, but I, I want to share with our listeners. So I'm uh-huh. done with always aiming to have that front seat at the front table, mm. not meaning I don't want to listen. So here's my story. Mm-hmm. So years ago, I'm at the Forbes philanthropy summit yes. and we have a whole day of meetings and you have everybody on the Forbes list that's in the room. So you have Oprah and Bill mm-hmm. Gates, Melinda Gates and Andres. I mean, just go down the list of every millionaire, billionaire that's on the list is in that room. Mm-hmm. So now the day is coming to an end and we're doing a dinner. Mm-hmm. So we get to the dinner and there's not a signed seating and Bill <laughs> Gates is speaking at the dinner. Mm-hmm. So I think, okay, I'm just so grateful to be there. I was moderating a right. panel with Melinda Gates on mm-hmm. and Jacqueline oh, Novogratz and Diane von Furstenberg. Mm-hmm. So that's the only reason why I was in the room. Otherwise, mm-hmm. I didn't qualify to be in the room. Mm-hmm. As far as their I, I qualified. Yeah, as, far, as far Please. as their qualifications, I wasn't in the room. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to take this table <laughs> that is in the back of the room because mm-hmm. I want all of our guests love it. at Forbes to have the front seat. Mm-hmm. So I go to the farthest table. And I sit down for a second. I, you know, I, I mm. put like my bag down and I'm now going to go mingle. But before I could do that, I sit down to be able to put my bag down. And I hear this voice that says, <laughs> is anybody sitting next to you? Mm. I, as I'm looking up, I see the person is Warren Buffett. 
And I'm like, <laughs> no, but no. don't you like want to sit closer to like, the front? To your, I, right. to your people? Right. I, like I'm back You're here yeah. because I want to give you all, I want to give other people mm-hmm. space towards the front to which he responded. And so do I. And that's why I'm back here. <laughs> and it was one of those moments yes. of... You know, so I had dinner with Warren. I mean, literally had dinner with Warren Warren Buffett. Buffett. I sat next to Warren Buffett. The whole I heard about how he got into playing the ukulele and and all of his, how he was courting his wife when he was younger and all of these stories about why he did or didn't give his kids money. Never in a million years would it have happened if I would have thought, hmm. I got to get to the front. Where is Warren Buffett going Mm -hmm. to sit? I want to sit next to him. So that's my thing. Sometimes it's just like saying, I'm not not always grabbing the front seat at the mm-hmm. front table. I love that. I love being done with that. Just think but, about if you had really like just if it had it been important to you to be up front, present, and in like a in a in a group setting, you would have never had that one. Right. Never. I mean, never. Hmm. Well, I think we negotiate that a lot. Like, at what point do we need to really assert our presence in a in like a in a in a way where um, being visible is important and matters. And in other moments, um, know that there are just so many things in life that are fabricated sort of constructs that are designed to, you know, include certain people and make other people feel excluded. When in reality, we get to choose that, right? In this case, had you been relegated to the back, like if you'd walked in, I'm just wondering, and you'd been given a seat and it was at the back of the room. Versus no assigned seating, would it have felt different to you than oh, having chosen right. that, right? And I think that we can, um, in our own, you know, mindfulness, make sure that we're not assigning people seats in the back of the room. Which is a great, a, a you know great point, I mean? also. And this is, I'm um, not saying that there aren't times you don't want the front table, the front seat. No, not all. You but need I think to be there right. sometimes. You really I, do. I think it goes da- back to mm-hmm. what was my reason for not wanting. I, I was like, yeah. I wanted to do the right thing, yes. right? I mean, I could have easily have sat at a front table mm-hmm. and nobody, or maybe they would have moved me, but I don't think they would have, mm-hmm. but I was really doing the right thing. It was like, I really need to let those other people have those mm-hmm. seats. Yeah. And so I, I wasn't putting myself. No, you were being polite right. and generous. And, about, and, and yeah, I was part uh, of Forbes and Forbes is hosting it. And so like putting so, yourself and not putting, not saying that I'm not as important, but right. it's like, this is. You're hosting this yeah, event. And so as, a, as you know, part mm-hmm. of the Forbes team. Well, look what the universe gave you I back know, I know. That, so I got, know, to have generous, dinner, I got to have dinner with Lloyd Buffett. Hearing about the ukulele, right? I think that's so great. So, so what great. about you? What have you done? With? So, I had. Can I? Say, I have two things that I'm done with. Okay. Okay. I'm rounding second base of life, um, which means I'm turning fifty this oh year. Oh my goodness! I know. And um, rounding second you base youngster. is where I feel. You know, I feel. I feel young. I feel. <laughs> I feel good about it. I loved when I turned fifty. Yeah, I feel great. And um, of course, in the year with the solar eclipse, it couldn't be. I could not feel like this is the better. The I couldn't feel like I'm turning fifty in a better year for energy and change. I'm done with two things. I am done with regret and I am, I am done with giving away my power. That's a word I've really struggled with power. Power. Yeah. Power. Um, and even saying, wow, you know, it's important, um, to be powerful. And it wasn't until recently because I had worked in nonprofit working with donors that oftentimes would, you know, would really serve the cause, but might want to co-opt it like other agendas and philanthropy that can often surface, um, beyond just the program work. And I thought, wow, people, you know, exerting power in that way. And then I worked in politics and it was like, wow, that's a different kind of power. And then working within an industry that has very few women in it. Um, it's a different way that power gets sort of seen or negotiated. And so I've always been very stealth and like, I don't raise my hand. I don't try and like get on a list. I don't try and even say, wow, I deserve credit for that. Right. I, that always felt just not right for me, but that's different from what I realize now than having a voice lending to the right moment in a public platform, like this kind of a platform. I'm sitting here now doing this podcast with you with Forbes. This is a beyond, you know, a mentoring moment. It's a moment that I would have never visualized myself in. And so, um, I feel like it wasn't until I did a, a friend of mine developed these cue cards, um, that have words on them. And she does like a talking circle where you pick five words that you have a positive association with and five words that you have a negative association with. And uh, one of the words I picked was power. I had a negative association with it until, um, we got into this sort of, you know, it was a, kind of a big group talking circle. I'm really thankful for her for this. In fact, I took a picture of the, of the card, wrote the date on it 
because I'm done with it. And embracing that word, um, this is powerful what you do, um, that we can bring good things to, to life and feeling powerful, right? And there's no quality or resume or job description or net worth or that, that is a prescription, you know, is a prescriptive or requirement to get to that word. Does that make sense? Definitely. Because I think we look at power sometimes it it does, it's like that bad word. And we talked earlier about keeping like money. And when we're we're always giving away money, it's like when I, when I was getting divorced, Mm -hmm. it was like, I don't care what it costs. I just, I Mm -hmm. I just want to make this easy. I don't want to go through it. That's not a good approach to take. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, I don't want to no, go I, through hell and back. I mean, right. it was like if that costs money to not right. drag me and my yeah. daughter through hell and back, then, yes. but then, well, then that's worth it's, it. It's easier to recapitalize emotionally. Exactly. I mean, financially, it would right. be emotionally if you don't exit the situation. But my whole being was the money doesn't matter. So it, it does. Was, I was way too much focus on the money on the doesn't money. matter. Yes. And I wasn't really looking at it as a whole. As a whole. Well, yeah. So, so, so power. And my, my friend Libby was the yeah. other person who was like, why do you give away your power? Yes. Like, Libby's talked about that on the podcast. And I was like, why do you, what do you even mean by that? Like I, I didn't even understand what she was saying to right. me. Well, until, she has said that on the podcast. She yeah. said, you know, when, when you say to someone, when mm-hmm. someone, when you allow someone to, and you say they're prettier than me, they're smarter than You're me. They're more successful than me. It's fine that they're they're successful and they're beautiful, but not than me. Than me. Right. That you're giving away your power. Right. Yeah. And all those moments. Right. In reality, it's really just about acknowledging, wow, you know what? That's great for that person. And that just kind of comes from, you know, insecurities of being like that. You know, we talked about this, the philanthropy that you do with like girls, you know, being the first and being, being the first. Oftentimes you develop, I think this sort of you know, it's kind of like what got you here won't get you there. You just, you know, develop this, this, uh, psychology of just being, I'm just not going to get, I'm not going to be noticed. I'm just going to like slide right by. Cause if they don't notice me then they won't kick me out, you know, so you develop this invisibility while you're building your success that can oftentimes flip on you, you yes. know, and it kind of flipped on me later in life where I was like, God, what am I doing? Like I'll have a, a presentation that I'll build that I think is going to be great. And in fact, my team were working on one about this humanities theme, you know, that we're in the humanities business, not, not the investment business with, you know, money sitting in the life of people as like a I beating heart. You know, I love it's a that. beating heart. It just, it's a, it's a, you know, it's the circulation of life. It's at the center of everything. And I, and, uh, and so how do we bring that, to light and life. Right. So, you know, as, as I'm sharing these, these things, um, you know, every now and again, you'll see, you know, someone will kind of, you know, in a way, I don't want to say like co-opt it, but we'll be like, Oh, okay. You know what? I heard that idea and you share it, but that's the whole point in the end, right. Is to put it out there and not be tied to it. So I'm done with the giving away the power. I'm not attached to the identity of it just for the purposefulness of it. Right. Which is which, wonderful, right? Which is why and what about regrets? Well, which is why I have to be done with regret. You can't do one without the other. I just don't yes, think... Yes, I will just say yes to that. Do you, yes. yes. Do I get an amen? Yeah, you got amen, amen. You know, I don't think you can do one without the other. And this regret loop that I know I have put myself through that, you know, again, it's sort of like you think it's a form of... You know, again, what kind of got you here won't get you there and sort of like, oh, I slid past the gates, you know, this feeling that I've had as I sort of, you know, slid past the gates and being on the Forbes list is like, I never would have envisioned that. And I feel like I'm there for all the right reasons that that's what feels great about that. And Um, you are. Thank you that, for saying that. We've settled that. Yeah, <laughs> you are. But, um, but I, you know, I slid past the gate. So the, the regret part is that part of me getting there was always like, wow, I would go home at the end of the day and go, okay, what could I do better? What could I have done differently? What do I need to do? And why was I validated in that moment, you know, at work or with that client or with that family that I like, what, what is it that I need to do? So in that constant state of self-reflection at a certain point, it can turn unchecked into regret. Like, Oh, I should have done it that way. Why did, you know, instead of it being an educational, it turns into a swarm of, you know, it goes from self-reflection to self-flogging. So I go to self-flogging and then, you know, spending, and this keeps us from the bigger dream, right? For sure. And so when, when I, you know, say, you know what, acceptance, this is the beauty of rounding second base of life. It's like acceptance. And, you know, you're not, I had a woman who our paths were just meant to cross. We couldn't be more different in the world. Um, who said to me, you know, you know, the point is, is that we try and, you know, our best done one day is not 
the best the next. Like you do your best in any given day. Well, look at professional athletes. I mean, you were an athlete. You can be a great athlete one day and the next day you can't hit the ball. You can't hit the ball. That's a great, yeah, you can't hit the ball. It doesn't mean you're not a great athlete. It just means you just had an off day. And I try to keep that in mind whenever I I have those days, because especially when you're doing things like when you're doing Mm -hmm. the podcast or when you're doing Mm -hmm. anything, you're right. There are some days you're on and there are some Some days days you're you're just just not not on. I mean, it's like just Mm -hmm. your health. I mean, you don't feel so great. You're tired. You Mm -hmm. were up too late. You drank right. too much. Whatever right. it is. <laughs> you were spying on me this last week, Denise. You were spying on me. I know the last time Sherry and I saw each other, we said we, we had this. We didn't say we weren't going to have wine. We, were, wine. we had a conversation about yes. not having wine anymore. Right. But clearly, that doesn't. That doesn't clearly, clearly, that doesn't work. That was a conversation, right. not a commitment, right? Right. That didn't um, work. But, you know, I think that though, that if you, as we know, you know, as we get older and we can say this to younger listeners is that where the mind goes, life goes. And if you spend too much time focusing on the string of regrets, that becomes the blanket that you're hiding under in life, you know, instead of going, wait, you know, okay, I did the best I could in moving on. And that just kind of comes with experience and confidence. And if you don't have experience and confidence, then it becomes all the more critical that you fall into the arms of the people who see a bigger vision for you than you can see for yourself Yes. in moments. And this is why, you know, successful life outcomes are really um, shared. This is not a solo sport. We all get to places where we just, we can't see our lives as big as they could be. And that's, that's the power of the nonprofit work, right? And taking kids, putting them into moments that otherwise they would never be invited into, that they could have never imagined themselves into and validating their presence, meaning that they belong there. You know, if I could, if I could have one big impact in the world, it would be to, you know, empower someone my age to feel like they're not sneaking past the gate. I'm glad I learned how to crawl over it or squeeze through it or dig a hole underneath it. And I value and like credit my upbringing for that, that kind of tenacity. Those are the lessons I was meant to learn. You know, my, my lessons weren't, you know, my family wasn't going to necessarily coach me into an Ivy league college, but they sure did coach me into knowing how to move past people with like a sense of confidence. Obviously. You know what I mean? (laughs) But, but when you land in the East coast, I mean, this is a place that really values um, traditional accesses to power and like what your pet, you know, pedigreed accesses to power, right? right? Whereas, you know, you grew up on the West Coast. I mean, it's, you know, wagons and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, the land rush. It's a little different. And I love that. Yeah, done with the, the regret. Yeah, being mm, done with the regret. I'm done with it, but I still struggle. With when it. I, and I think that's you the know. thing when we talk about the things that we're yeah. done with. And it's not <laughs> always one, it's not a 100% thing, mm-hmm. but it's recognizing it and being able to say, yeah. I just want to get rid of that in my life for now. Right. And I'm going to work on getting rid of that. Yes. And like I could go on with this mm. forever, but I want to go to takeaways, okay. which is our section where we've crowdsourced questions from our listeners. And here's one. She wants to know about her resume. From where you're sitting, and I understand, and this is your opinion, that mm. a different person right. who is at your level in corporate America may mm. not answer this the same way. So mm-hmm. I don't know how you're going to answer it, but <laughs> I really want your honest opinion, not like the, and I, I don't doubt yes. that you're going to give the honest yeah. opinion, okay? What would impress you more? The fact that I went to Harvard Business School or that I volunteered in India for a year at a school for the untouchables? Should I, if I were applying for a job with me, with you, mm-hmm. what should I put on my resume? Uh, I, I would definitely say the volunteering in India. Because? Without question. Uh, because I think that the life lessons about, you know, inter- first of all, serving people who, again, um, not only need your help, but validation. People want to be seen in the world. They want to be acknowledged and recognized as being important and mattering. So serving like underprivileged communities in India, I can't imagine a more wonderful intention that would translate to frankly any job moment, whether you're meeting with a hundred million dollar private wealth family and talking about a family foundation, I would think that the skills developed, you know, in, in going to a different culture, um, outside of potentially your comfort zone, learning a little bit of like the non, you know, the language of, of human communication outside of like what we say to each other, and really understanding a little bit more about like what the continuum of challenge and suffering looks like, I think would be an incredible standout on any resume. I have a real 
belief, you know, with my background, that travel is the great equalizer, that if you don't have money, you went to kind of like a mediocre school, that you, if you ha- can share a story in common with someone, it just transcends all kind of like race, class, gender lines to share a story and say, you know what, I actually visited that city too, and here's what I thought. Or, you know, I, I did that hike, or I've spent some time in that community too. And it just sort of like immediately transcends how we kind of predefine, you know, who belongs in our life story and who doesn't, you know? So I have a, can I just quickly tell a story? I have a woman who, um, was my intern, uh, during the financial crisis. And I actually ended up changing, moving firms during that time period for lots of reasons, just about, you know, all the stuff that was going on in the markets. And so she was coming out of college right at one of the worst times to ever find a job. And my, my advice to her was to go travel, go to, tra- go travel. Her family had actually uh, come here, I think in the fifties from China and uh, she'd never been to China and she still had family in Beijing and, and her family, I believe had not been back either. And I said, you know what? I, I would really encourage you to travel. And when you come back, we'll integrate it into your resume. We'll build a story about how you wanted to go and visit one of the most important economies at one of the worst moments in, in global financial history. And you wanted a front row seat to that. And you wanted to understand it and go spend a month traveling through China. And then I, you know, gave her, you know, I gave her money for tickets to go, um, which I can do. It was under the gifting allowance. There you go. And so, (laughs) so I just think that those moments are really important. You know, travel is the great equalizer transcends class race. I agree. Gender. Whenever I talk about my daughter and people mm-hmm. say, where did she go to school? And I will say, you know, yeah. she went to school at UConn and then she, but then she quit school and she spent a year traveling, right. visiting some of the schools that are part of, she's the first, the mm-hmm. organization I'm on the board with. That. So one of them is a school for the untouchables, which is wow. funny that the question was that, mm. but, um, and so she spent six months there that's in India amazing. and then she spent six months in Nepal yeah. and everybody that stops them. They're like, really? It's wow. not like the, edge. and, and mm-hmm. I agree with you. I think it's those experiences to be mm-hmm. able to live through those things, to oh, be able yeah. to navigate, to adapt, to put, and she was eight. I mean, I remember the day that we took her, Lewis and I took her to JFK. Mm-hmm. She was 18 years old. Wow. And that she was going to a school that I knew. Mm-hmm. So she was going to one of the, she's the first school, Shanti Bhavan. Mm-hmm. And so I knew when she got there, she would be okay. But I have to tell you, when she mm-hmm. went up that escalator at JFK, I looked at Lewis and I'm like, what wow, have we done? done? I mean, it's watching your blonde, Eight. your five foot 10 blonde hair, <laughs> blue eyed daughter, wow. 18 years old, getting on a plane, yeah. going to, going to Bangalore. Mm-hmm. And you're just watching her and you're just like saying, please, Lord, you know, yeah. make this be the great decision. That, and it was, it was mm-hmm. one of the best. And Sherry, I could go on with you forever, which we will. We're yes. going to go out and drink or we do something. Like Hoda and Kathy Lee do. I'm like in the middle <laughs> yeah, of the day. What is right? this? Why, I know, you know, I know. I wine like, during the day. Yeah, Everybody to, knows something we don't know. Right, right. Podcasts, like, thank you so, so much. Oh my gosh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. You are wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so if anyone ever tells you that you aren't talented enough to do what you want to do, aka follow your dream, or if they say, you know, that's a great idea, but you don't have the experience or you don't have the knowledge, please, please, please remember our stories today. And especially remember this, that you need to sidestep those people and you need to move beyond them so that you can see yourself more clearly. That might mean that you need to get your own tribe. You have to find a different community, a group of people that can really see how big you can be and know that how you get there, it might not be the traditional path. It may not be how your best friend got there or your professor got there or your mother got there. It's the path that you need to find for you. And you may end up in India getting a different kind of education than the one you'll get from that top-rated college, but you'll be living your dream. And then you can just come back and apply for a job with Sherry because life is about the journey, not the destination. So thank you all so, so much for joining us today. And to get Mentoring Moments the moment it's live every Wednesday, remember to download new episodes on the Podcast One app or subscribe at Apple Podcasts or PodcastOne.com. And make sure to rate, review, and share. And speaking about the Podcast One app, this you got to know about. That's where I'm getting my podcasts. 
that's where you should be getting your podcasts because there is no other podcast app like it. And you can find out for yourself. It's easy. Just download the all-new Podcast One app. You can do it on the App Store or on Google Play. And here's why I love it. First of all, you'll get more content about mentoring moments. And for all your favorite shows, you get behind-the-scenes photos. You can watch virtual reality. And there's a community so you can talk about your favorite shows, which mentoring moments. You can talk about mentoring moments. And you get rewards. Okay, I love this. You get rewards just for listening. So for all those times I said to my daughter, you know, you got to work really hard to get a reward. Well, they kind of proved me wrong. You just have to listen and you get a reward. So do it now. Just download the all new Podcast One app. It's in the App Store or Google Play. So check out my show notes. I'm easy to find. I'm on Twitter at Denise Ristari. And until next week, keep sharing your stories because your stories matter. Download new episodes of Mentoring Moments every Wednesday at podcastone.com, forbes.com, the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe at iTunes. I'm Christina Wallace. And I'm Kate Scott Campbell. And we're the hosts of The Limit Does Not Exist, a podcast for human Venn diagrams. That's right. We talk to people with intersecting interests in the arts, STEM, entrepreneurship, and so much more. The easiest way to explain science to non-scientists is to use art. I worry that we lose a lot of creative engineers because our engineering curriculum is not creative. Education should be about empowering people to become better thinkers, good problem solvers, creative inventors, and ethical caring citizens. Download new episodes of The Limit Does Not Exist every Monday on the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts or PodcastOne.com. I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. London police have arrested Julian Assange on extradition charges to the United States, as well as for violating his bail. Assange is accused of publishing classified documents through WikiLeaks. In 2010, he told Sky News he was worried about what the U.S. might do to him. The United States recently has shown that its institutions seem to be failing. Uh, They are failing to follow the rule of law. And with dealing with a superpower that does not appear to be following, following the rule of law is a serious business. He also said in 2010 the U.S. officials had threatened him and those associated with him. There has been many calls by senior political figures uh, in the United States, uh, including elected ones in the Senate, uh, for my execution, uh, the kidnapping of my staff. Edward Snowden, the former security contractor who leaked classified information about U.S. surveillance programs, says the arrest of Assange is a blow to media freedom. I'm Rita Foley.